Welcome to Friends and Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories. Novelists Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry are four longtime friends with more than 70 published books between them. Together, they host Friends and Fiction with author interviews and fascinating insider talk about publishing and writing to highlight and support independent bookstores. They discuss the books they've written, the books they're reading now, and the art of storytelling. If you love books and you're curious about the writing world, you're in the right place. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday night. It's time for another episode of Friends in Fiction. We're really looking forward to our guest tonight, so let's get started. I'm Christy Woodson-Harvey. I'm Patty Callahan-Henry. I'm Meg Walker. I'm Mary Kay Andrews, and as you probably noticed, Meg is our managing director, is sitting in tonight for our girl, Kristen Harmel, who had a previous engagement and wants everybody to know how sorry she is to miss the fun. And of course, this is really sad. She kept saying, please tell everyone, please tell everyone. Yeah. And this is Friends in Fiction, four New York Times bestselling authors, endless stories to support indie bookstores, authors and librarians. Tonight, we'll be talking with Lisa Jewell about her best-selling novel, The Family Remains. And don't forget, as you know, we continue to encourage you to support independent booksellers when and where you can. And one way to do that is to visit our own friendsandfictionbookshop.org page, where you can find Lisa's books and books by the four of us and all of our guests at a discount. And we, of course, are also continuing to encourage you to check out Macintosh Books' bookshop dot org page that did not sound right but y'all know what i'm getting at um yes. they have a ton of storm damage and are having to relocate their store and in the meantime this is a great way for us to support them and i i know y'all have seen our fall schedule and that's why you're here but it's under announcements on our facebook page with our almost hundred thousand members we're closing in on and next week, we get to talk to Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, and Susan Meisner. All three have co-written a historical fiction novel called When We Had Wings. And then also on that show, we will have Santa Montefiore with her newest, An Italian Girl in Brooklyn. So obviously, you don't want to miss a single episode. Great pronunciation, Patty. Very fancy. I, I practiced. I <laughs> and we know many of you have been participating in our very first Present Fiction Reading Challenge, organized by our friend Anissa Armstrong. This month, we're reading books that feature family secrets. If you're looking for a way to keep track of these books and your other reading, we'd love to recommend our beautiful reading journal available at Oxford Exchange. And I'll just say, family secrets, I mean, what better than The Family Remains, Lisa Jewell's book, which you will hear about tonight. Yeah, I mean, Secrets on secrets on secrets in this book. Yeah. There are secrets inside the secrets. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and you know, every week we have loved doing our new Act This Anything segment. So if you have a question for us, leave it under the thread in the Facebook page announcements, and we'll try to get to your questions in upcoming episodes. Mm-hmm. But we're going to do some today, too. Yeah. Okay, ladies, let's introduce Lisa. Lisa Jewell is a number one New York Times bestselling author of several novels, (laughs) including The Family Upstairs, and then she was gone. 
Her work has been translated into 29 languages and her novels have sold over 10 million copies internationally. Yeah, piddly, right? Yeah. Her first novel, Ralph's Party, was the best-selling debut novel of 1999. And recently, Lisa has written several psychological thrillers, including The Girls and The Night She Disappeared, both of which were Richard and Judy book club picks. Lisa lives in North London with her husband, her daughters, and what she calls the best dog in the world. Might have some we'll fun. argue for that. We, we, we can fight about that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> her new novel, The Family Remains, was released earlier this year, and it's a standalone sequel to her earlier novel, The Family Upstairs. Okay. Welcome, Lisa. Sean, you're going to bring Oh, there she is. Hi, Lisa. Hi there. Lovely to be here. Uh, we're so excited to have you here to discuss The Family Remains. To start us off, I would love it, we would love it if you would tell us what this deeply disquieting novel is about. And then, if you don't mind, what's it really about? Okay. So this deeply disquieting novel is actually a sequel to um, an equally, if not more disquieting novel, <laughs> mentioned, which you mentioned earlier, which is called um, The Family Upstairs. Um, and I, because this is a, a, a novel followed by a sequel, when I have, when I talk about the sequel, I, I feel I have to bring the first book into it as well. Yeah. So then I end up like, it's like I'm talking about the biggest book in the world. Um, <laughs> so I'll try and keep it short. So the family upstairs is about a young girl, 25 year old girl who, um, inherits, um, an eight bedroom mansion on the banks of the River Thames in an incredibly upmarket street called Cheney Walk in Chelsea, uh, which is worth millions and millions of pounds, which sounds wonderful, except she also finds that there's this terrible, terrible dark backstory to this house where she was found as a baby, um, with three dead bodies in, in the kitchen that she doesn't find out about until she inherits the house. Um, and then the rest of the book introduces us to what actually happened in this house back in the 80s and 90s. And it's very dark and very disturbing. Um, and at the end of the book, it's it's kind of a happy ending for most of the characters. But there's one character who developed an obsession on another character in the first book, a boy called Henry Lamb was obsessed with um, the, one of the members of the family who came to live in his house, who was called Finn. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the first book, he found, finds out that Finn is working as a big game ranger in Botswana. And he thinks he's going to go and track him down. So that's the, end of the first book. The second book is pretty much about Henry trying to track uh, Finn down. Uh, Finn, who is not in Botswana at all, but it is somewhere completely different. Um, and it also reopens the case of the three dead bodies on the floor in the mansion and what actually happened there in the 80s and 90s via the discovery of a bag of bones on the shores of the River Thames, not far from the big mansion uh, in Chelsea. Uh, and a detective called Samuel Owusu, who's um, charged with finding out the identity of the bones and where they came from and how that person died. So thick, and there's other things going on as well. But we would be here all night listening to me talking. <laughs> We'd actually like that. These two books, and there is a lot going on in the family remains. Um, but when when you're in the book and reading it, it's not quite as uh, confusing as it might sound having to <laughs> describe it. <laughs> now, is there a deeper meaning to to um, the family remains? Were you trying to get at something or were you? I never know. I never write books trying to get at anything. I never write books okay. trying to in, instill any sort of meaning or 
I, I write stories. They don't. If somebody finds a meaning in them, if somebody sees symbolism in it, if somebody feels that there is a theme in there that was relevant to the current world or whatever, you know, what's going on in their private lives, that's complete fluke. I just want to, I just <laughs> I want to write, knowing that. I just I, want to write stories. And if they, if they ding dongs, you know, that, that's sort of kind of, um, yeah. That's very comforting to me. I'm so glad to hear that I'm not the only one that. Pure entertainment. I just want to make things up. (laughs) But but one of my favorites is when people come up and say, oh, my gosh, your theme of whatever just meant so much to me. And we're like, yeah, 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 meant meant to do that. Me and my themes. Me and my themes. themes. (laughs) That should be a song. (laughs) Okay. Well, you say your first few novels, starting with 1999's Ralph's Party, followed by 30 Nothing, One Hit Wonder, and A Friend of the Family, might have been described as romantic comedies or that word we hate. You're going to say it, aren't you? I we know, I'm not. Gonna say I'm, gonna let, I'm just going to let it be assumed, right? Okay, good. The word that I'm not going to say it. But like yes. the four of us, your writing has changed through your career somewhat dramatically. Somewhere away, along the way, Lisa Jewell's writing seemed to have taken a dark turn. Yes. And now your psychological thrillers are being compared to Gillian Flynn, Lisa, Lisa Foley, even Karen Slaughter. So how did that happen? Yeah. Did you wake up one day and think, I'm going to get my creep on? No, but precisely the opposite. And I do know, I, ha- I have got friends, contemporaries, who were writing in the same genre as me back in the noughties and the early... Um, what do we call them? Tens? I don't know. Um, Yeah. Who did do that? Who were writing in one genre and then decided they'd had had enough of that and they wanted to try something brand new and fresh. And quite often they had to change their names, their writing, their pen names or move publisher. Mm -hmm. And it was a big dramatic leap and a huge experiment. Uh, Whereas I was very, very fortunate in as much as I was allowed to feel my way quite slowly, book by book. I've always had editors who just gave me free reign to do what I want and didn't expect me to write to any sort of formula or to keep repeating um, successes. Um, and, yeah, so I've just sort of, I was kind of in a way like sort of hoping that nobody would notice I was doing it. <laughs> just like We're calling you out, Lisa. <laughs> calling you out. I haven't written a romantic relationship in this book. Do you think anyone will notice? Do you think I'm going to get a complaint? And then I didn't. And then just be like, I've read that's a really, really dark storyline I just introduced into that book. Do you think anyone would notice? And then they didn't. And then I killed someone and, and nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever said, stop enough, please. We don't want you writing this sort of stuff. So yeah, I just kept pushing and pushing, um, very gently and subtly, um, and got away with it. And, uh, and thank God I did because it's been amazing for me personally as a writer of my career um though that you know the psychological thrillers have been much much bigger for me than the uh the romantic comedies ever were so yeah it's been a, it's been a good journey lots of positive moves it makes me think of the whole like frog in the boiling water yes right like if you turn the water up slowly the frog won't yeah. notice but if you yeah. throw him in boiling water he'll jump out yeah and you see you just Turning the heat up a little bit, turning the creep exactly. up a little bit, a little yeah. bit, a little bit. Exactly. That's exactly it. Exactly it. Yes. But I actually think with this book, with The Family Remains, I kind of cranked it back down a bit. Did you? Yes. I think I think it's got more in common with some of the books I was writing after I started writing romantic comedies. I thought the family dramas 
with dark secrets that I was mm -hmm. writing. There's a few of them, like yeah. The Making of Us and The House We Grew Up In um, and The Third Wife. And that's so, yeah, I think it's almost gone backwards a little bit to that. But the book that I just finished writing last month, um, <gasps> ooh, it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to we'll, we'll have to leave the lights on after we read that one right? yeah you will you will you will <laughs> i love that well lisa talk to us about these very damaged and in a couple of cases monstrous characters that you created we have yeah. lisa and henry lamb libby finn michael rimmer birdie many of them holdovers from the family upstairs as you mentioned where do these troubled people come from Oh, that's such a good question. So, for example, you've got, like you say, David and Birdie, who are the really, really, um, they're the, they're the, the villains of the piece in, um, the family upstairs. They're horrific characters who can, capable of inflicting great pain and cruelty on people. Um, and because I wrote about them from a remove, um, at a remove, I've, don't still don't really I would love to write a book just about David and Birdie and get into their heads and find out why they were the way they were I think narcissism played a part um sociopathy played a part um but then you've got the other bad characters um and you could say that Henry Lamb is a bad character but he's a different proposition because he's introduced to the reader at the age of 10 just about to turn 11 and he's a little boy he hasn't done anything wrong yet he's slightly odd um and yeah so he just grew on the page as as all these bad things happened to him this slightly odd boy turned into this really quite devious depraved very dark um um teenager who at one point is um responsible for the accidental death of a cat and for those who don't like animals dying in books this is a horrible cat um but <laughs> it's a horrible cat nobody liked the cat but yeah. Yeah, He's accidentally responsible for the death of the cat and keeps the cat's tail because it's soft and pretty. Um, but at the same time, he also saves everybody in the house and cares about his mother and tries to rescue his mother from all the terrible things that she's allowing um, to happen to her, her, her and her family. So he's much more ambiguous. He's a much grayer character. Um and yeah, so he comes from a different place. So there are different levels of bad character. The, the, the more developed ones where I kind of inside their heads and I can understand what makes them tick and why they are the way they are. And then there's the people like David and Birdie who I just look at in in shock and all just like, who are you awful people? <laughs> How did you get there? Yeah. Yeah, we, don't, we don't know a lot about, um, about Birdie and David no. in the family remains, but now... You did give us a, a horrifying look at a at a at a bad guy named Michael Rimmer. Oh yeah, Michael. Well, Michael. So I've written a lot about this. Is um this is a relationship that is we're first introduced to Michael Rimmer in the first book, and he is the ex husband of Lucy Lamb, who is Henry's sister. And we don't see much of him, but we see enough to know that he's a bad one. He's not. He's a nasty man. But we don't really understand how his relationship with Lucy worked when they were married. So I thought this was a really good opportunity to see what sort of husband he actually was. So I've in the second book, he's married to his second wife, who's called Rachel. And we watch the relationship from the day they meet until the end, until she finds out that he was murdered in the first book. Um, and, yeah, it's a. It's a terribly coercively abusive relationship. 
And it's something that I write about so much in my books. There's so many of my books contain this as a theme because I was myself in a coercive marriage um, in my early 20s, oh. five years. So and it's, I guess it's a kind of therapy. It's a kind of, you know, I keep revisiting this theme from lots of different angles and getting lots of different types of characters involved in the same situation where two people meet and this terrible toxic thing happens where one person manipulates the other person. Um, it's something I just keep writing about. So, yeah, Michael was just yet another sort of character that I've used to explore themes that I just find absolutely endlessly fascinating and uh yeah not not a nice man Michael Rimmer unfortunately I think it's endlessly fascinating too because you never truly get to the end of it you can yeah. try to figure out a reason yeah but it's this damaged yeah um yeah I know. And I've got I'm, I'm assuming I've got like another 20 or 30 years of writing ahead of me. And ha who knows how many more times I'm going to delve into this dynamic, this weird thing that can happen in some relationships um, until and, and ever find an answer, because I don't think I will ever understand how some people want to control other people and how other people allow themselves to be controlled, to be controlled. Um, in that way. That awful, awful thing that can happen. So, yeah, yeah. expect more. <laughs> it's very relatable. I mean, I think we all, you know, have either been in a situation or, or watched a situation from the outside to varying degrees, you know, maybe, well, not, yeah. maybe, not, maybe not quite, maybe not quite a Lisa Jewel book level, but, you know, to a degree where you. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You just see tiny little flickers of behavior in couples that, you know, and you just think, I wouldn't let somebody talk to me like that. Or why has she cancelled that plan just because he wants? I'm I'm talking as if the man is always the the abuser. It's not always the case in coercive um, relationships. It can often be the the woman who controls the man um, because it's not a physical thing. Um, but yes, it is. It's there. Even as you say, not not to the, the the incredibly dark degree that I write about it in my novels, but it's there a lot just in relationships. That's, that you you see know, that just reminds me, we've all been watching, not all of us, but Meg turned us all on to um, the Bad Sisters. Bad Sisters. Oh, oh my gosh. I haven't started again. She so to me the other, the other day. day. Yeah, so good. Talk about a coercive bad Is it good? Villain. It's so good. Oh, it's maybe so I'll stop good. I, yeah. I didn't like the sound of it. It sounded a bit cheesy. But oh, no. I don't think it's cheesy. It's, um, it, it definitely has humor because she's a comedian. But yeah. her writing is brilliant, I think, and the character development is great. And she sort of trickles the drama out over time. At first, you don't realize how bad the guy is that they all want to kill. And then you're like, you want to kill him too, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. uh, anyway, that's, it. that's twice in a week I've had that recommended to me. It's going on my watching list. That's very good. <laughs> makes me want to move to Dublin. Yes, <laughs> makes me want to move to Dublin, definitely. Okay, now, Lisa, I read that you mentioned uh, D.C. Samuel Owusu. Am I saying that right, Owusu? Correct, absolutely correct. Yes. The chief detective investigating the discover of these skeletal remains. And you call, you call him an accidental creation. Yeah. And so I was fascinated by your admission that you don't read traditional crime novels. And that you had no intention of ever writing anything like a police procedural. Yeah. Uh, and in your previous novels, talented, talented amateur sleuths unravel the crime. So what changed with this book? 
It was him. I can't explain it. I knew I'd got quite a way into the book before I realized that I wanted to introduce something that was more like I was saying, I felt like I'd gone much more back to the family dramas and I wanted to introduce something into the structure of the book that would make it feel more like a crime novel, more like what people would expect from one of my books these days. Um, and I also thought I, I needed to go back more to the house from the first book because it wasn't getting much of a role in this new in this um, second um, installment. Um, and so I thought. Birdie's bones, whatever happened I, I, in the first book, Henry chucks her bones in the river. And I thought that could be an amazing starting point. What if somebody finds the bones and that would necessitate somebody trying to find out what happened in that house and I'd imagined that there would be um, this scene at the beginning where they find the bones and it would be a mudlarker on the shores with a bunch of tourists finds the bones calls the police policeman turns up um, and I randomly gave him and his colleague names um, but I didn't have really much of a clue or who of who they were what they looked like and then I wasn't really going to go back to them again it was just going to be the opening scene it was my prologue here are the bones, here are the policemen, they've come to take the bones away and they'll do forensics on them and then they'll find out who the bones belong to and then the whole thing will unravel. But it, he just kept, I just kept going back to him. I just kept, I kind of wanted to be along with him. I, I wanted to follow him. I wanted to be there when he got the, got the forensic mm. report back and, and be there when he found out the name of the victim and be there and, and as he got closer and closer to the unbearable truth of the story about that weird house um so yeah I just kind of followed him around and let him do his detective things um and felt very very nervous <laughs> because I don't write police procedure and here was a policeman doing procedure <laughs> and I was very worried that I was doing it all wrong um but I haven't had nobody's written to me from a police force anywhere in the world at this point to say you've done it all wrong so I'm hoping I got away with it. But, yeah, he was absolutely accidental. He was supposed to be in the prologue and then disappear. Um, but he's stuck around for the whole book. I loved him. I liked him, too. He was, he was so circumspect. Yes. And I wanted him to be pure. He was very pure, I thought. He was pure yeah. essence of detective. There was nothing else clouding his job. He didn't have a backstory or, a, or an addiction or damage or PTSD or any of those things that detectives are supposed to have. He was just pure essence of detective, which I really liked. I really so enjoyed that. Well, let's take a sneak peek inside the mind of Lisa Jewell. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, where do your ideas come from? And we're wondering if your training in fashion and design made you an unusually evil-eyed observer of human nature. Oh, right. OK. Um, <laughs> ideas. Yes, I can. I, I'll debunk that second bit very quickly. but. Um, <laughs> The first <laughs> ideas, yeah, just I don't have very many. I'm not really an ideas collector. I'm not like a magpie who goes around life thinking, oh, that would make a good book or oh, that would make a good book or oh, I'd love to write about that. I'd love that. I don't. I walk around just looking at things and wondering about people and looking through people's windows and um, just looking and wondering and thinking. And then every now and then I'll just get this sort of shivery feeling of just like, oh, yeah now 
that's just sort of jumped, jumped out of the wallpaper a bit and, and taken on an extra dimension. Um, and when I get that shivery feeling, I know that that's my idea. And it's not really an idea. It's like we were talking about earlier. It's not a big theme or something that I think has got some sort of social message or, or, or anything to impart or um, anything symbolic going on. It's just like um, the book that I just finished writing. I looked through the window of a house on a very cold, miserable January day when I was walking the dog and I saw this man sitting in the window of his house at his laptop and I just wanted to write about him there was nothing about him I just there was something about wow I don't know what it was there was something suggestive of secrets behind him and I sort of mentally followed his the, the, the outline of his flat what I could see through the window and imagined what was in the other end of the hallway and there was a shut door and there was a teenage girl behind that closed door and what was going on with her and why is she but so that's that's where the they're not ideas they're just feelings they're images it sounds images, like images just things that you that, take to the next level yeah. yeah um but in terms of the fashion thing no i mean <laughs> I, no i i was no it, i don't think it's got anything to do with my interest in fashion I like clothes. I don't really like fashion per se. Not really interested in fashion. I just like clothes. I like to wear nice clothes. Um, and she's sitting here in just like a big black sack. Um, <laughs> but no, and I, I, I was once asked this by a, um, a man who'd read my entire backlist and asked me that exact same question. He said, because it's, there's so many descriptions of what women are wearing and the interiors of their homes and, and I said, all women do that when they write. No woman can write a, a, a description of a of a character without describing what they're wearing. No woman can write a description of somebody's home without saying what the wallpaper looks like or what colour the cushions are. It's just what's what we do. We're women. And that's how we see the world is in that sort of detail. So I don't think you need to study fashion to have that sort of eye for detail. But now you do have Rachel Gold, who is a jewellery designer as a character in this book. Yes, yes. She is. And I purely made her a jewellery designer because of her surname, really. So the surname came first. <laughs> and I thought, what could she do? What could she do for a living? It needs to be something where it's all quite precarious and she hasn't started making any money yet. So it's like a startup thing and her dad's having to support her financially. What could it be? What could it be? Oh, that's her. Gold. You could be a jeweller. So, yeah, that's where that. that came from. Inspired. <laughs> Well, Lisa, well, we always want to be able. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. You go ahead. I'd say we always want to peg down where ideas came from so that the next idea will come quicker. But we can't. We no. can never. It's a dream. It's an image. Yes. It's something somebody said. It's a curiosity. But we keep exactly. thinking if we can peg down where it came from, then we'll know what to do next. That's exactly right. And I was out with writers on, on Tuesday night and one of them was having a nightmare because she's out of contract and she feels very strongly that she wants to present her publishers with something that's so, in terms of a synopsis and a title and some blurb that's so immediate. And so here it is. You really, you know, how could you not want to publish this amazing thing that I haven't started writing yet, but you can just read it. <laughs> going to be throwing money at me. I mean, it just doesn't. It never works that way. Like that. The thing is there after Sadly. you've written it, then you can take it to a publisher and say, look at this amazing thing I wrote. It's so um, true. But you can't, that, that thing. And so she's been weeks and weeks trying to find this big idea. 
And that's not how the great books start. They don't start with a big idea. They start with. Yeah. They start with the work. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. They start with a shiver and then some words on a screen and then. And a lot of. Passion, isn't air. it the best feeling in the yes! world? Yes! <laughs> so good when you just get that little tingle oh, and you yeah. know, and you don't know what it is, but you know you have it. And you don't yes. know what it is, but you know it. It's just, yes. It's the it best. Is- I'm actually getting goosebumps while you're saying that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lisa, you, um, oh my goodness, I'm just sitting here thinking how much I know everyone's going to love this show so much. And they're going to be like, we want Lisa again. You've been, you're so <laughs> good. Um, we love a good writing tip. We say it's for the audience, but it's really for us. Um, (laughs) if you have a writing tip I feel like you've already given us so so many but if you have another one we would love a writing tip oh god I mean because that's like like little tiny tips or like tips to get you off the starting blocks and and get you onto onto your computer and start writing there's sort of so many different little things um and of course everybody does things differently like my my writing tip to myself is get everything done before you start writing whereas i know most writers i know can't get anything else done until they've written so that what works for me wouldn't necessarily work for for other people but i think just in terms of if you're wanting to just get off the starting blocks is just to be kind of you have to be sort of fearless um mm. you and also not it's just getting the words on the screen and not one worrying about whether it was a good word or a bad word or what it means or just to just get the words onto the screen. I, I, this is a terrible tip. This is a no. terrible tip. It's, it's very that's, real. That's how I do it every day is, is I don't think, oh, what am I going to achieve today? Well, what I'd like to do is move the plot along to this point and then I'm going to have an arc. And then I don't. I just sit and think I've got to write a thousand words. So just focus on getting the words on the screen. And then the magic happens after you've done that typing. It's just you look back on it and you think, wow, actually, that, that worked really well. Um, and Now there actually is a character arc, and somebody yes, did move forward, exactly. and something happened. Or you read it the next day and think, well, that was garbage, and I'm going to have to yeah. get rid of all of it. But <laughs> well, what the delete button is for. Salt lines, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like it moved you forward. It got you to another day. It's a thousand words it's, closer to the end. And Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we are curious what you're reading. So, it we we've stolen this from the New York Times book review, but are there any books on your nightstand before you tell us what you're loving? Are there any books on your nightstand we might be surprised? No, I am literally <laughs> the opposite of that. In as much as pretty much everything I read is similar to the stuff I write. I oh, love wow. them, okay, yeah. Okay. I don't. I, I'm so unadventurous. It's so unusual for me to um jump out of my comfort zone i'm looking the reason why i keep looking like that is because although you can't see it on screen my reading t- tbl pile is right behind me and there's about 200 books on it <laughs> yeah we know yeah um anything that you wouldn't expect no i think you would pretty much expect everything mm-hmm. so what have you absolutely loved lately like blown off the top of your head like oh my gosh that was so uh, good yeah, well, you probably have already been aware of this book um, because it's a, it's a Reese's Reese's current pick, or does she do monthly picks? Or I don't know how monthly. Yeah, monthly. monthly. Oh, well, then it was last month. So it's um, called Wrong Place, Wrong Time by Gillian McAllister, McAllister, which is a time hop psychological thriller 
um, which if it had been done badly could have been um, cheesy, yeah, terrible. But she's done it so beautifully, and the character to character development in it is extraordinary, and the detail, and it's just perfect. Um, I'm saying that I read that a year ago. I read that in October. It didn't come out until this year, though. Um, and I'm trying to think if I've read a book that's blown my socks off since. I must have. But, of course, I can't think of it right now in the moment. But no, I'm, do I'm going thing. on holiday um, next this time next week. I will be in Tenerife. And so I'm already doing that wonderful thing when you know you're about to pack a suitcase oh. and sit on a sun lounger and you're mentally sort of compiling your uh, your book list yeah what are, you what are you bringing i'm taking hidden pictures by jason reculak has anybody read that mm-hmm. no, not oh that's a, that's a massively hyped book of the moment and i've been saving it um i'm also taking a book called a floor in the design by nathan oates who i think is american um and that's a psychological thriller and that's got a lot of hype going on about it as well mm-hmm. and i'm taking oh I'm going to show you that one just purely because it's down. This one, oh, it's called Bad Fruit by. Bad Fruit. I've heard. I keep hearing about that one. Ella yeah. King, um, which, yeah, again, I think is she American? Ella King? No, she's she's British, but I think it's set in America. Um, yeah, so I've got those, and then I've also got Gillian McAllister, who wrote Wrong Place, Wrong Time, has just sent me the proof of her next book. So. I'm going to do exactly oh, what awesome. I did in October last year and read Gillian McAllister and get blown away by it, I hope. So. Sounds <laughs> exciting. Yeah. It's so funny. Some authors say, I won't read what's in my genre. And yeah. you're saying, that's all you read. Yes, so. I wish I could be more adventurous. I wish I, I, wish I read more, um, a wider variety of things. We, but no. what, we love what we love. And that's yes. it. Yes. That's right. Exactly. Well, Lisa, if you wouldn't mind sticking around for another minute, we have more to talk about with you. But first, I want to tell you about our Writer's Block podcast with all of us and our beloved, well, all of you. Well, no, sometimes me. I'm on there, too. Yeah, you're on there. Yeah. (laughs) All of us, yes. With our beloved librarian pal, Ron Block. We always post the links under announcements each Friday when a new episode drops. The most recent episode has Ron and Kristen talking with Frederick Bachman about his new novel, The Winners. And coming this Friday, Ron and Patty talk to Alyssa Cole and Jean Kwok about their essay contributions to the new collection, Marple, 12 New Mysteries. Listen, review, subscribe, and make sure you tell a friend if you like what you hear. And of course, you won't want to forget about the Friends of Fiction official book club with Brenda and Lisa. With 14,000 of its own members, this club is run by our friends Lisa Harrison and Brenda Gardner, otherwise known as PB&J. They choose the books and host authors for monthly chats. So listen to all the fun things they do. They have happy hours with our Writer's Block podcast host, Ron Block. And they keep everyone in the loop about suggested reads and upcoming releases. And... We're just going to hint about it for now. We'll talk a lot more about it later, but we're all going on the road together starting next year in April and then in May and then in June and then in July and then in fall for MKA's book. So just keep your ears and eyes open. Also, the new Friends in Fiction first edition box is available from my local indie bookstore here at the Jersey Shore, Booktown with an E in Manasquan, New Jersey, and it features Uh, All four signed hardback first editions from each of the Fab Four in 2023 and a Friends in Fiction kitchen towel, which reads, Dinner Can Wait, It's Time for Friends in Fiction. You can order from them right now at booktown.com. Remember, it's booktown with an E. 
Okay, Miss Lisa, one question we love to ask. And I'm really curious about this with you after listening to some of your history. What were the values around reading and writing when you were growing up? Like, do you think they influenced you becoming a writer? What were those in life? You're talking about in my family? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Oh, wow. Um, Values. Yes, that's such a good question. (laughs) Interestingly, (laughs) there were no books in my house. Wow. um, Wow. There was this one tiny fitted bookshelf in our dining room that my father filled with um, those leather-bound Reader's Digest condensed reads and things that he bought (laughs) in the pages of of Sunday supplement magazines and what have you. And he occasionally picked up antique um, books in bookshops, but it had to be leather um and that was it it was just there to look pretty nobody ever picked those books off the shelf and read them um but we we being me my mother and my two sisters were library um junkies we had a yeah we had a library a very library. close to our house um and it was a really cozy library in an old victorian house that had been converted into a library so it was super cozy and um yeah, that's we just went there every single week religiously. We got out, we spent an hour there. I was sort of cross-legged on the carpet reading the books. And then as we got older and could read by ourselves, we'd um take out I do you remember the little cardboard tickets that we had in libraries before they got computerized, the little cardboard yeah. tickets. Oh yeah. And yeah, so all of us read all the time, particularly my mother. My mother was always reading a book. Um so it wasn't seen as anything academic or intellectual um nobody read to to learn um in our house but we just read for fun so yeah it was a bookish house with no books in it (laughs) a bookish house with no books it's a great title for a book but i also feel like 98 percent of the time writers say that libraries were integral to the values when they were growing up really astounding yeah I guess when you think of the atmosphere inside a library, it's what it, it's that it's just pure essence of book, isn't it? It's just yeah. there. You're surrounded by books and people who read and people who love reading, and it's just yeah, it's got an idea. Yeah, Lisa, thank you so much for spending time with us today tonight. Where can people find you? Uh, okay. Virtual media. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't want them to track you down in London, but you know, digital. <laughs> Must you have a coffee shop, Lisa? Could be a good spot for your next book. Oh, that's so funny. Um, I'll give you the map coordinates. Um, On Facebook, there is an official Lisa Jewel Facebook page. It's called Lisa Jewel Official, I believe. But I don't really have any heads up. I don't have anything to do with that. Um, Because, yeah, I just don't have anything to do with that. But I also have my own personal facebook page which occasionally is up to five thousand, but occasionally i can squeeze another couple in which is where i do most of my online stuff which isn't very helpful i guess given that <laughs> uh and then there's instagram which is lisa jewel uk um and write to me on instagram i i check my pms twice a day every day and reply to everything um and twitter yeah i don't really bother with twitter but i'm lisa jewel uk on twitter as well as well so you can also write to me there if you want but i'm not very active so so if we well maybe we'll turn the corners on you and look into your window (laughs) see you see you sitting there at your laptop yes 
Absolutely. And write a novel about me. Yes. (laughs) We'll have an anthology from four different points of view about Lisa. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we really enjoyed talking to you and everybody I know is going to want to read The Family Remains. I hope so. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That was a lovely day. Take care. All right, everybody. Now, you know, you can find all of our back episodes on YouTube. We're live there every week, just like we are in Facebook. And if you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. Be sure to come back right here next week when we welcome Ariel Lahan, Christina McMorris, Susan Meisner, and Santa Montefiore. And don't go anywhere if we haven't asked us anything. Yeah, we do. We do. That was, yeah. God, I could talk to her for a really long time. She was wonderful. And her accent is so good. I could just listen to her talk. When I was doing research, I, I, I didn't ask her about this because we had so many other things we wanted to ask, but I was fascinated. She said that um, in her library days, she, um, she read everything. She read the whole Agatha Christie, Miss Marple series. Wow. Start to finish. And then she never read another mystery novel again. <laughs> wow. She'll need, to, she'll need to listen to our podcast episode when we have the, uh, yeah. the essay. Yeah. Well. All and right, and so- when we interviewed them about Miss Marple, they each had their reason that Miss Marple oh, affected them, right? Like how she influenced what they write now and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's a great idea a great, for a book, don't you think, Patty? It's genius. Yeah. Take a beloved character and put her in new situations with new points of view. Well, they all had to stick to, like they couldn't change anything about her. They couldn't have her get married or have a kid. Like they had to stick to who she was. But I love those constraints. It was it was really it. good. Twelve different writers who get to explore yeah. a, a beloved, lifelong beloved character. Yeah, it was made by Angela Lansbury, who just passed. Yeah. That's oh, great. Oh, yeah. yesterday, I think. Right. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yep. So we got a lot of uh, questions that people have been leaving for us. So let's get to those. Sue Elliott asks, what book have you read that you can never forget and why? Meg, what about you? Have you got an answer to that question? Oh, I think I'll never forget Angela's Angela's Ashes. I feel like that book, it just um, seared into my consciousness. Ripped me apart. Yeah. And uh, just the writing was so beautiful and honest and um. It was a, just a crazy eye into what what extreme poverty looks like too, because you you think you think you don't have it so good, and then you read someone else's story. But the writing yeah. was just gorgeous, and it's just a book I'll never forget. Yeah. Oh, you're making me think about that book again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I can remember reading that and reading when um, the young boy is they're licking the bacon wrapper. Yeah, because that's all they've got. <laughs> Same. Yep. What about you? Uh, you know, I'm kind of floored by this question right now. I'm going to pass pass it on to Christy. Um, you know, somebody was talking about on the page the other day about their 
um, high school students reading The Kite Runner, which obviously has been around for like a long time. I think I read it in high school too. Um, and I was just thinking about how like searing that novel is, like how it, there are just things about that book that sort of are like haunting and you can kind of never forget. Do you know what else? This is like not what I was going to say, but this just, I was just thinking about this book. Um, the Girls. Did you guys read that book? Yes. Um, I loved it. yes. About it the Manson. About, about the Manson murders. Yes. Yeah. That is a book that just like in the creepiest sort of way has yeah. <laughs> really stuck with me, you know? Um, and just that ability, especially when you're young and, you know, you can sort of be taken in by people. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'll echo you on the kite runner too, because um, I actually worked at Riverhead when that, when we published that book. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And um, I got the chance to meet Khaled Husseini at, um, at sales conference. He came to sales conference. I didn't meet him at the conference. I met him, at the bar after where, where everybody went to see the rock bottom remainders. And I don't know if everybody yeah. knows who they yeah. are. It's a rock band made up of famous authors like Stephen King and Amy Tan, Dave Barry. And um, he was at the bar and I, I did the most unprofessional thing and just went up and completely fangirled over him and told him basically how that I would never forget his book. And it kind of changed me. And, um, you know, cool. sometimes you have to do that, you know, yeah. No, I, I feel like if you run into somebody whose book affected you, I met him in Birmingham when he came on tour for his next novel. And um, I got to talk to him and I spent the first five minutes like, you know, I like, who doesn't want to hear that too, though, you know, like, does that ever get old for people to be like, wow, your book no. was amazing and changed my life? Like, do you, does yeah. that, are you like, oh God, I'm so tired of hearing that. <laughs> Please don't tell me how what I do all day, every day has impacted you. I mean, like a hundred or, well, not a hundred, but there's so many going through my head, but I, I think I'm going to stick with for now and, and maybe I'll, we can even ask this again, but um, I will never forget Beach Music by Pat Conroy. Mm-hmm. I remember reading that and, you know, from the, in case you haven't read it, I don't want to give anything away, but even the opening scene, mm-hmm. you're just like, how did he do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did he do that? And then you find out later, of course, that he mined the compost pile of his life. Yeah. And then even more so, you just, you just, he, he hits something like right here and there's scenes in that novel. I will never I'll never be able to get out of my head. So I'm, I'm going to say that one for sure. I joined you on that one too. I mean, I, I even remember where I was when I was reading it. And I have these memories yes. sometimes of like sitting in this beach chair on this very beach, you know, on, in Spring Lake, New Jersey, and like just being riveted. Like, no, you guys go in the water. No, you go get lunch. I'll just be right yeah. here, like glued to my chair. And then this silly, but I worked at Double Day too when he was published there. And um. He came, oh into the office, he came into the office one day and it was really, I think the only time I was ever so starstruck by someone. I couldn't, I couldn't speak to him. I just was like, yeah. just go to the next office, please. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> me. Go. Can you, could you, could you move on? Could you just move on down there, please? I'm very busy. <laughs> very, very, very busy. Yeah. yeah. I feel silly now because I work so closely with you guys and you, you were friendly with him and, yeah, but it was in that moment. I was like, I can't talk to him. He wrote Beach Music and Prince of Tides. <laughs> yeah, well, I think too. Getting to know him, he, you know, you all did, but he, 
um, that was real. Like all that pain and all that, like he poured it into those pages. And so I've never been able to forget that. And then knowing later that all that, how real it was. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to stick with that answer. You know, um, I wish I could say something very literary. Um, I do remember I was living in Savannah um, when I read The Lords of Discipline, which is about really about Pat's time at um, the Citadel. Yeah. And not so much just about that, but about Charleston and the way people in Charleston thought about people, you know, in the upstate, which was uh, so déclassé. But, you know, I read Rebecca at a um, form in my life. And um, that book stuck with me. And I think it it started my my fascination with old houses, big, creepy old houses. Um, Ah, I see uh, that. I see that all over your writing. Yeah, I mean, I read as a young girl, my sisters and I read a ton of, uh, of, um, oh gosh, um, what was, oh, and uh, Victoria Holt. My oh, sisters and I read yeah. huge numbers of Gothic novels, Victoria mm-hmm. Holt. And so, but uh, and I'll never forget the opening line. Last night I dreamt I was at Menderley again. Um, so, Anyway. That's a great book to never forget. Yeah. 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 And, and how, and I mean, you know, it's not a very sympathetic book when you think about the way Max treated, you never know, you never know the narrator's name. Her name is never told in that whole novel. Yeah. I remember reading um, Jamaica in, yeah. in school and it was like, like in, like as a part of a class. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. What? Like, who is like? We should have seventh graders read Daphne du Maurier. Why not? Like, <laughs> so I had never read her, and when I was in England a couple months ago, and I was in Cornwall, I thought I want to read something set here. So I read a Poldark, and then I was like, I want to read another book set here because there's something about reading in the setting yeah. where you are. Right. And so the little library at my inn had all these Daphne books because she lived there. She lived in Cornwall. And I picked one up called The House at the End of the Strand, I think it was called. Mm -hmm. It was so creepy and so good. And it was based on the house she actually lived in. And I will not forget that book either, probably because I was like the setting and the book and everything she talked about was three miles away. But I was like, oh, this is why Kathy likes these books. Because it was all about the house. It was yeah. about- you know that she wrote the short story, The Birds? Yes, I did know oh, that. The movie was made from a short story. I did not know. Oh. Yep. I, did. Okay, I read that in the in that like in the biography in that book. I was yeah. like, Oh, I mean, but that house is everything in the in the story, yeah. Kathy. Like yeah. it's yeah. yeah. Let me ask this next one of you guys. Yeah. Reply to me. It applies to you. Okay. Uh, from our one of our longstanding friends and fiction regulars, Sharon Carlson Person, wants to know from you Hi, guys. Sharon. With so many books out, how do you each decide who to dedicate your books to? Oh wow, that's a good one. Yeah. I could take this one. I, I obviously have fewer novels than the other two. 
but it's just always been really obvious if that makes sense. Yeah. Like it's like the book goes with the person. Like, I don't even know, like the wedding veil, like it was really obvious that I would dedicate it to my sister-in-law and my cousin because they had both worn the veil and kind of like inspired part of the story of like us all wearing the same wedding veil. And, um, I don't know. Yeah. Even like, uh, like under the Southern sky that had, a, had two friends that were like very instrumental in telling me stories that like led to me writing under the Southern sky and, um, the summer of songbirds, well, like she probably won't read this. She doesn't know this yet, but, um, but like I'm dedicating to like a friend who like absolutely loves summer camp and made us go to family yeah. camp. And it just seems like she's the person yeah. that should be dedicated to. Go ahead, MK. How do you decide? Oh gosh. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes not. Oh, well, you have yeah. a lot. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I know the the last book was dedicated to Katie. You know that, and but you've 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 in happier times. There's plenty of other. Why you dedicated one to me? Let's talk about that. And one to me. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Um, and when you're uh, friends of fiction, so it's just me. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who the next book's going to be dedicated to yet. I have an idea. Um. It's probably going to be me, but she doesn't want to tell you guys because she doesn't want to say it out loud. Yeah, I see some writers to to make it easy on themselves, dedicated to the same person every single time. Yeah, yeah, that would be easy. Yeah, it would be great. Okay, I'm going to answer this, and then I have a funny story okay. about a dedication. Um, so I think what you two said sometimes it's just obvious, right? So. Um, someone who inspired it or someone who was particularly um, influential in the book. Um, Flora Lee is dedicated to Friends of Fiction because without y'all, I would never have written the, I would have written that book, but it wouldn't be the book that it is Right. without you three ladies plus Kristen. So all four of you are in the dedication. Um, uh, we were pretty instrumental. I mean, I don't, I hate to brag about my large. <laughs> You did. You talked about it with me all the time. Kathy named Whisperwood. So so sometimes it's obvious, but like one time I dedicated Becoming Mrs. Lewis to C.S. Lewis and Joy Davidman. Like yeah. they're, they're no longer with us, but the book wouldn't exist without them. So I think right. maybe that's the answer. Like the book wouldn't exist as it does yeah, without them. But I have to tell you this story. A long time ago, I went to a book signing and talk at the Margaret Mitchell's or Atlanta History Center. This is, I'm talking 15, 20 years ago. Oh, Kathy, Mary Kay, you're going to have to help me remember the name of the author. Um, Kay Gibbons. Kay Gibbons. Mm. Um, you remember Kay Gibbons? Yeah. And she wrote beautiful historical fiction. Yeah. And I bought the book and I wanted her to sign it. And so I stood in line and I got up there. And she opened it to the dedication page and she took a pen and she was like, and she crossed out the dedication. <laughs> and she goes, this was dedicated to my husband and I don't even want his name in this book. And then she signed it to me. <laughs> oh. just, I do think about that though. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. Like, what if, you know, you've dedicated like to my, to my great darling love and then, you know, 10 yes. years later, your great darling love is gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, not darling anymore. So, <laughs> anyway, I thought that was fun. <laughs> That's amazing. 
All right. So I guess the motto is be careful, right? Yeah. Yeah. I um, always look. Don't y'all always look? Yes. Oh, yes. That yeah, and I, acknowledgments. Yeah, I always look at acknowledgments too. I do too. Yeah. We have one more. Mm-hmm. I I want to. Yes. Let's do the one about the weirdest inscription a reader wanted in an autograph book, and I'll and I will tell you mine after after somebody else tells theirs. I don't think I have one. I mean, I've had people say like, "Say happy birthday," or say to to my mom who is the best person in the world, or you know, funny things like that. But I don't think I've ever had anything really. Yeah, I haven't done anything weird. I do have like on multiple occasions that someone put like, will you put like to my breast to my best friend so and so so that like when I'm dead and my grandchildren look at this book, they'll be like, wow, she was best friends with the author. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I think it's funny. So I my second book was a mystery and it was called To Live and Die in Dixie. And when the paperback came out, it had a Siamese cat on the cover. Mm-hmm. along with the bust of Robert E. Lee. It was not a very well done bust of Robert E. Lee. I later learned that he had the wrong hat. But in that book, and it reminds me of, of what uh, Lisa was just saying, the bad guys kill a cat. Oh, it's yeah, a very yeah. elderly Siamese cat. And they are doing that to let Callahan, my character, know that she's next. I mean, she's going to die next if she doesn't quit poking at rocks. So I I was signing the book and and um right after I turned the book in and after it came out, I was with a bunch of other mystery writers, including this very funny woman, Joan Hess, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And she said, Honey, you killed a cat? Nobody told you the rule? You can't kill a cat in a mystery novel. What? No one told me that. Yeah, no, you cannot. Mystery readers love cats. You cannot kill a cat. I'm like, okay, well, now I know. But I was at a signing. You never did it again. No, I was at a signing at a mystery bookstore, and um, a woman came up to me and she said, "Well, I know the booksellers here very well, and they just warned me that a cat dies in this book." And I said, "Yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know." But it wasn't me. It was the bad guys. And she said, OK, well, I want you to um, find the book, the page in the book where the cat dies and put a big X through it so that I won't read it. And then I want you um, to uh, sign it to me. And I need a pledge from you that you will never kill a cat in a book ever again. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Wow. I was like, I swear to God, I will never kill a cat in a book again. <laughs> And you've never oh done my gosh. No, I've killed babies. I've killed old oh, babies. No one cares. No one cares. Nobody says a word when you blow away, when gang members blow away a baby, which happened in that same book. No one said a word about the baby, but they were not. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Kathy, Kathy, Mary Kay, Mary Kay, Mary Kay. I think that's the perfect way to end with Mary yeah, Kay's vow to never, never kill another cat. Never kill a cat. And there is not a dead cat in my fourth On my honor, I do swear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, Thank you, awesome. everybody. That's it for us tonight. Good Thank night, y'all. y'all. Good night. Thank you for tuning in. You can join us every week on Facebook or YouTube where our live show airs on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Also, subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram. We're so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.